Hi, I'm Peppy, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and yeah, I'm nervous up here too. Um, I want to thank the committee for asking me to share at this convention. I've been coming to this convention for a long time. And I take it as an honor and as a privilege to be able to share the message that worked for me through Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so I just needed to say that. And another thing I need to say is I share by my understanding and my memory and all of you out there that's got a different story, you get to tell it when you speak. Because <laughs> that's all I can do is, is through my understanding and how I remember. And I've, I've come to understand that throughout the years that changes. You know, if, if they would have told me the first year that I'd understand this program the way I do today, I wouldn't stay. There's no way. You know, and, and that comes from a loving God that takes me and puts me right where I need to be, where I need to be, and when I need to be. You know, and, and the people that help me with that are my sponsors and the fellowship and this program. You know, my loving God. Little history, my family that I come from, both my parents were alcoholics, raging alcoholics. In fact, everybody in my family drank alcoholically. I mean, you, when you drank, you got drunk, you puked, you fell down, you fought, the police were called. I mean, that's the way it was. And my mom's mom had a bar in Illinois, Dupo, Illinois. And my dad's mom had one on South Broadway in St. Louis. So it was pretty convenient for my parents. You know, whichever mom wasn't mad at whichever in-law, that was the bar they went to. You know, so that was my whole life that, you know, everything revolved around drinking. That's what you did. That's what you did, and that's how you acted when you drank. So after my mom and dad got a divorce when I was eight, I started visiting my dad, just like divorced kids do. And he, his disease had progressed much faster than my mother's did. Hers came later. But he became the everyday drinker, you know, and, and he was the, the passive drunk, and he fell asleep at the bar, and, and he did, you know, he wasn't pretty clean most of the time, just put it that way. And I remember one day when I was visiting, and we were at the bar, and I was begging my daddy to come home. And he was so drunk. And he, he said, I promise I'll come after this one. I came home and was sitting there. And I was nine years old at this time. And I remembered that there was a bottle of Mogan Date wine in the icebox. And I did not want my daddy to drink that wine. I didn't want him to drink anymore. So I grabbed that bottle and I thought, oh, but if I throw it away, I'll get in trouble. Somehow that nine-year-old knew if I drank it, I wouldn't. And you know, I got a draft glass, and I poured that full, and I took, and I can remember it way, way back when. When I took a gulp of that, I didn't get high, I didn't get drunk, but something happened that I can't put in words. I, for the first time in my life, felt normal. Or I felt, or something had happened. I didn't know what. And I chugged the rest of that wine down, and I remember filling the glass up again and starting to drink it. And the next thing I knew, 
I heard my grandmother saying, Jimmy, 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 she's drunk. Look at her, she's drunk. <laughs> and I'm stumbling around the bedroom and I'm throwing up. I had chili that day. <laughs> Man, you'd think I'd never picked up another drink after that. But <laughs> turns out they had found me in the bank doorway, Chippewa and Jefferson, at 9 o'clock at night. And I was in a blackout. And there was a show that I used to go to down there. So I, I figured that's what was happening. I was walking down to the show. And you know, throughout all of this drunken stupor, my grandma screaming that I was drunk and, and me watching out of the corner of my eye, I could see a little smirk on my dad's face. Just a little pleasure of, look at her. <laughs> and I was right, I didn't get in trouble. I didn't get in trouble. That was the start of something that that wasn't out of control at first. But the one thing that when and I do do a lot of inventories, and God every once in a while brings another one up. I go, whoops, I got to do this again. But what I recognize now, before that incident, I was Miss Perfect Patty. And I was not a problem at home, and I wasn't a problem to my friends, and I wasn't a problem at school. I was just Miss Perfect. I was wonderful. Didn't give anybody any problems. From day one, I started failing in school. I started not listening to my mom. I had a personality change just tremendously, even though I wasn't drinking every day. You know, and I, I found that a few years into recovery, I saw that. So my personality change came quick, and it stayed there, and it got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse. And you know, when you're nine years old, and you want to drink, and it's not as available to you as you want, because there wasn't a whole lot around the house, we had to do it at the bars. But I started hanging with people that were old enough to bring me drink, or to give me drink, and I started hanging around with men, and I started hanging around with women, anybody, that if there were four of us and there was a six-pack of beer, I got two of them. Every time. I made sure I gulped the first one so I could get the next one. You know, and that, that gradually increased to the point that I had to drink more and I had to do things more to drink. And one night, the only good girlfriend that I had left she was a good girl. And I was 14 years old. And she was a good girlfriend. And she called and she had a blind date for me. And she couldn't go out because there were three guys and only two gals. And her mom wouldn't let her go unless they found a date for the third. You know, that's what you used to do back then. You didn't have any extras. And, you know, well, I was ready in 15 minutes. I saw him. I thought, this is where I'm going to get. And he was 22 years old. He had a job making good money. He was a teamster. And I knew I was going to get him. And you know by the second date, I did. I did. He was a wonderful non-Alanon. <laughs> the Alanons will understand that one. <laughs> and I was a wonderful alcoholic that knew how to work him in. And you know... That was in July of 1966, and by October the 1st of 1966, 
We were married. Now, people in St. Louis, you cannot get married when you're 14 years old, even with your mother's signature. Because we got the blood test back then, and my mom went to the marriage bureau with us, but they wouldn't let her sign me away because I was only 14 and I wasn't pregnant. So, what do we do? We go to Illinois. I like Illinois. You can get things done over there you can't do it on Missouri. So I married him. And you know, that really was wonderful because now I've got a 22-year-old guy in my life every day that just loves it when I drink. Okay. But by the time his 14-year-old wife with a 16-year-old wife, he was pulling all the booze out of the house because he got tired of coming home seeing this sloppy drunk laying all over the house. So he started pulling it away. So what I had to start doing was go away to find other people that I could go drink with. And you know, I did on a regular basis. Not every day, just when I could. I'd get to meet some people. Most of the people I met weren't alcoholic because after they really saw how I drank, they didn't invite me back anymore. You know, we were married about three years, a little over three years, almost four years before we had our first child. And a couple of years later, the next child came. And for the ladies out there, you know, this program will take anything away. I have no doubt that this program, which I call the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and the fellowship behind it, will take everything away. You will not regret anything in your past if you do the best of your ability to do this. And that mother guilt is the last thing to leave. For me and for the girls that I sponsor, that's the hardest part to let go of. You know, because right now I still see the consequences of my disease in my children. I don't have the guilt anymore. Any more than if I would have been blind and they would have had consequences being raised in that type of home. But this program helped me be able to walk through and some of these things that I'm going to share where my children weren't taken care of. My children laid in dirty diapers for hours. They, they weren't fed. I had a four-year-old that was feeding the two-year-old because I was too drunk to get up off the couch. You know, things like that, just that, that I was trapped in. And you know, it got so bad. There was a lot of violence in, in my family that I come from, a lot of violence. You, could, you have to have violence when you come through families that we, we had. And there became violence in my family. And my children saw things between their, their father and I that no children should have to see. And there's a lot of people that, that know me as this nice, spiritual lady, you know. There's a lot of people that know the other one, too, right here in this room. <laughs> that was other periods of recovery. But it was so bad in our home that the Pine Lawn Police had to confiscate our guns. And it wasn't to protect me. They knew I was going to kill my husband. They knew. They had been there enough times and knew domestic violence. They knew I was going to kill my husband. And you know, alcoholism played its rampant craziness with me to the point I had a nervous breakdown. It was like 1973. And you know, I went into the psych ward, had a total breakdown. 
had 18 shock treatments. They put me on all of the pills. And the doctor looked at my husband and said, I don't know, there's nothing we can do for her. The shock isn't working, the pills aren't working. You just have to send her back home. Well, they weren't treating the alcoholism. They were treating the depression. You know, but because I didn't tell them what was going on, they couldn't treat what needed to be treated. And they sent me home on those high-powered sedatives that, that our big book talks about, which helped lead me faster and deeper into the progression. You know, the more I drank, the more I did other things, the more blackouts happened. It progressed. My husband and I were in that cycle. I can remember my poor husband standing in the middle of the living room. And I looked at him one time, and I could see he was losing his mind. He was literally losing his mind. And I couldn't do anything about that. Because when I told him, I promise I won't drink again, the reason he believed me is because I was telling the truth. That's why every time I told him, he sucked right back in. You know, but my disease in a couple of weeks bring me into all of a sudden I'm drinking again and I don't know what happened. You know, and I'm hitting the bar or I'm doing whatever. You know, it came to the point that my children, it's, like, it's in our big book, uh, around 133, 134. I don't know the book that well, but there's some pages I really do. Okay that it says the children cordially hate the parent. And I used to say respectfully hate. My children cordially, respectfully, whatever you want to call it, came to hate me. But they did not do it disrespectfully. They told everybody else. You know, I knew it. Everybody else knew it. You know, but that's how they survived it. And we came to a point that we had this game. Oh, I'd hide my bottles. Everybody would go to bed and I'd start drinking and I'd hide them underneath the couch or I'd hide them underneath that dining room cabinet or I'd hide them here or there. And in the morning, my daughters would have to get up and they'd see their drunken mother laying in the middle of the floor where she fell off over the dining room chair with her glasses over here and her feet up in the air. And those children had to walk through that dining room and go to school. And you know something? I'd wake up and the first thing i think is, oh man, i got to get that bottle. And I'd go to my hiding place and it wouldn't be there. i think, oh wait a minute, maybe I hid it someplace else. So I'd go someplace else, but it wasn't there. And I went all over my house. I was nuts. And then I realized my kids were finding them. And they were taking them out. Well, you can't ask them. <laughs> I couldn't say, where's my bottle? <laughs> you know, they were empty bottles. I don't know of a non-alcoholic that hides empty bottles. I think they put them in the trash can. You know, but that's where the, the cycle went. You know, that's where it came. And we finally, we moved to Bonterre, where we're at now. And, and something that I've learned for this alcoholic, anything new will give me a quick fix for about 90 days. You give me a new house, and I'm happy for about two and a half months. You give me a new relationship, about two and a half months, a new job, a new anything, a new car, it'll last me about 90 days. I can ride it out. But if I don't take care of what I needed to take care of that had me get that stuff, then it all comes back. 
And that's what happened when we first moved to Bonterre. It was like, oh, this is so wonderful, and we're such wonderful people in the community, and look at this school, and look at these people, and blah, 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 blah. But it wasn't long that I started finding the bars where everybody could know my name. And I want to tell you something, people. There's a bar two blocks from my house that we still wonder why it's in business since I quit drinking. But I'd be so drunk, I couldn't drive home. And I would literally have to hold on to the storefronts, the plate glass windows, to walk home. And every once in a while, they got those recess doors. <laughs> Bam! You know, and every time I go through that empty building, <laughs> I, I look over there and I smile every once in a while. But that was the only way that I could get home. You know, before that happened, I, uh, since we are down south, I went to visit my mother-in-law, the saint of the world. My mom and I have got a wonderful relationship today. My mother-in-law never saw me sober, but she was the saint of the world. Because that woman, I'm not sure if she would just, I don't know. She knew a whole lot about me, and she still loved me. And she didn't interfere with what was going on with my husband and I. And one time I visited her, and my sister-in-laws went to the bar. And to prove everybody I didn't need to, I didn't go. But then I changed my mind, of course. But by the time I changed my mind, they were gone. Well, I called them, and they wouldn't come. Well, that's fine. I drank without them. And the next thing I knew, I woke up in Greenville Police Station. <laughs> and I had left that bar, and good alcoholic that I am, I know not to drive drunk. Okay? So I was getting too drunk to drive, so I pulled off Highway 67 and parked that vehicle. Well, I didn't know it was another road. And the sheriff and his wife came. I was in a blackout and hauled me to Greenville Jail. Now, when you live in Sylvie, Missouri, or Piedmont, Missouri, you know what happens in Greenville. Okay, especially when there's this green truck sitting out front of the store. Everybody knows. And you know something? My mother-in-law never brought that up. She never did, whether it be on a codependent basis or loving. She just loved me. Now, I've had so many people in, in my life. The last 10 years of my drinking, I had a major surgery on my intestines every six months. Today, I believe, I believe, it is because I was shutting my system down with the alcohol and the other chemicals I was using, but mainly the alcohol. I just, that's what I believe, because after I got in recovery, I didn't have any more surgeries. So one just kind of goes with the other. And how I got to treatment, because everybody had worked on me like they did, they brought in a new doctor who had moved in the area, and he started checking stuff, and he found my alcoholism. He found out I had pancreatitis. He found out I was doing all these other things. And he wanted to put me in treatment. And my doctor and I said, I don't need treatment. I'm not an alcoholic. And my doctor knew that I'd helped uh, a mother-in-law die with bone cancer. He knew that I'd helped manage stores that, that were just super, and I was such a super this and super that and super that. And any time that my husband had talked to my doctor about my drinking, I'd go in there and say, yeah, doc, I really tied one on this weekend. But it just all came down on me. I had to. And, and he, he, he was a very spiritual, Christian, loving man, and out of compassion, I tracked him. 
When they took me into treatment from one medical floor to the treatment floor without my permission in a wheelchair, I made a decision that I was going to do everything they told me to do and I was going to show them it wouldn't work. And the treatment center was only 17 days old. They had no Al-Anon training, no Al-Anon background. We only had one big book reading a day. No other sessions whatsoever. And I was in lockdown with 13 men. It was January 17, 1987. And because of this fellowship and good sponsorship and a strong home group, I haven't had a drink since then. And it's because it's because of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's because that man that came into that treatment center that I didn't believe anything, and he told me I had an allergy. He told me it wasn't my fault that I was doing what I was doing. That when I put certain chemicals in my body, mainly alcohol, I didn't have a choice what I did. And he took me to the big book and he showed me where it said, these alcoholic types can never use sick alcohol in any form. Safely use alcohol in any form. And he sat there and he talked about this arrogant, all these millions that he lost in the oil business and all this stuff with his drinking. And I thought he was just the most arrogant, whatever you're going to call it. I didn't like him at all. But he said, but you know something? I haven't had to drink for eight years. And... One other time, something happened inside. I thought he was full of it when it was the millions. I thought his story was a lie. I thought he was just out of it. But somehow, that sensing, when he said he hadn't drank for eight years, somehow I knew that was true. And I stayed. But I still didn't think anything could work for me. And when I got out, the counselor said, 90 meetings in 90 days. Well, that's not Alcoholics Anonymous that I understand. That is a treatment suggestion. And But because my higher power knew what I needed, I thought, well, I'm going to have to do it. 90, I can put in another 90. Yeah, there's that 90. And you know, the area that I came into, Alcoholics Anonymous on the conference level had pretty well died. There were no, they were not in tune with the service structure. They were not plugged in with world services. There were a lot of meetings, but no groups. And there is a difference in a meeting and a group that I understand today. But there were two men before, six months before I was ever known, had made a commitment to each other that the next female that walked through those doors would be allowed to stay no matter what they had to do. Because back then, and, and, and in the vicinity that I was in, it was not safe for women to come in. It was not safe. I was the only woman when I walked in, and I want to tell you something. I didn't act like a lady, and I didn't talk like a lady, and I didn't dress like a lady. I was not a lady, and I walked into those tables, and when I left the meetings, and John L. would stand there at the door and watch me walk to my car and think that old pervert. Well, I'll just shake a little bit more. <laughs> what I didn't know at those points were he knew that there was guys that had beer out in the car that would offer me a beer if he didn't watch. You know, he knew what was going on in those lots. 
That's why I said it was meetings. It were it was people coming together that had lost the primary purpose, the singleness of purpose. It was everything, you know, we didn't have any big books around the tables. There were no literature around the tables. I didn't know any of that. I had a big book because of treatment. I did find a sponsor, this, this guy's wife. Well, the first one was appointed to me through the unit. And later on, she came to me and made some amends for her actions, So that's and she's passed on now. But I hope I don't ever do to a person what she did to me. <laughs> I mean, it was not loving. It was not Alcoholics Anonymous. But you know something? I look back now, that first 30 days, it was everything this alcoholic needed because there was nothing else out there for me to focus on. And when I let her go and I moved on to this other one, I saw her as a little sweet Southern Baptist Texan. I just knew I was going to have her. Well, I was her first fancy. And she just loved me to death. And she started talking to me about this God. And believe me, people, I didn't want nothing to do with God when I come in here. Okay? I, was really, I really liked the agnostic part here or the atheist part. Because, you know, what had happened to me as a child, there can't be no God. You know, there can't be. So I don't want, even if there is, I don't want nothing to do with it. But this lady and I would sit at the table and we would talk like he was the weather. And I think, man, you know, I don't feel bad. And she wasn't pushing it on me. She wasn't expecting me to take it. She was just telling me what she believed. You know, and today I now know why that was there. Because the next sponsor I met two weeks before my six-month birthday. Oh, I've got to go back. Two and a half months at one of these meetings that I was at. I was sitting there. We only had about three meetings a week at that point down there. And I went, I haven't felt bad for about two or three days now. It's like, uh uh-oh. It was my first turning point of this just might work. I am so eternally grateful for the 90 and 90 for this alcoholic because I thought, well, I said, I do 90, I'll do another two weeks. And the next thing I really remember with that group was celebrating my six months. You know, but two weeks before that six months, I met this gal that came down to the aftercare. She was not from our area. She was from the metro, St. Louis area. And she told her story and she had everything I wanted, but I didn't know that I what I wanted. I just knew she had to be my next sponsor. But I didn't know what to do about this one that I love so much. I didn't want her her feelings. You know, and I knew you couldn't have two. I knew you couldn't have two. Within a week's period, these people had to go back to Texas. But my loving God had brought a woman and put her in my life before that happened. So I immediately had some place to go. And when I asked this lady to be my sponsor, she said, well, we're going to have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Nobody else has ever talked to me about it. <laughs> and she sat and she said, I will expect you to do what I do in the program. 
We may talk about your life things, we may share life incidences, but what you do in your life is between you and your God. But I promise you, if you take these steps and you apply this program into your life, you will get the correct answers. And she said, I will not do it any other way. She said, so you need to look at it. You know, I was so wanting something different. The, I was happy back then, too. I was a freak back then. Because yeah. <laughs> I come to the meetings happy. But I went ahead and I agreed to it. And she immediately gave me assignments out of the big book. She immediately said, we're going to learn all about step one now. I said, oh, I know step one. I did that treatment. She said, no, 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 no. <laughs> You're going to do it this way. And we're going to take it and we're going to go through it. And we went through step one. You know, and, and I saw a different type of powerlessness over alcohol. I hadn't seen it that way. You know, reading Bill's story and reading some of the other stories and her exposing me to groups This pin that I wear is from one of her sponsors, Annie C. from Kirkwood. Anybody from St. Louis knows Annie C. from Kirkwood. And this sponsor took me to these groups and showed me what Alcoholics Anonymous was all about and showed me the fellowship and showed me the traditions and action. By the time I really started looking at the traditions in the book, I went, oh, that's what Don P. does. Oh, that's what Annie C. doing. Oh, she didn't say it, but that's what she's doing. They were living those traditions around the tables. You know, they were teaching me by action. I came in in January of 87. In October, well, I need to make this claim or two here. I told everybody, oh, yeah, I got God. Oops. Yeah, I got God. Uh, yeah, I believe this. And oh, yeah, I know he's loving because that's what they want me to do. That's what they want me to say, so I'm going to say it. And I'm going to do everything they tell me to do. And it'll finally catch it later. But you know something? I didn't have God. Didn't believe in it. Thought, well, I'm just going to have to do it because these people. But in October of the same year of my recovery, I came in in January, I was diagnosed with cancer. And it was an aggressive cancer, and it was the kind of cancer that they say people die from. And I want to tell you something. You know, Smitty was talking about it. The Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous surrounded me, surrounded my family. My sponsor took me by my wrist because I had the Kleenex in my hand. And she led me from one group to another group just led me. She gave me someone who has cancer in Alcoholics Anonymous to talk to because she was so scared and in so much fear she didn't know how to help me. And she brought me to this gentleman. You know, he helped me live with cancer instead of dying with cancer. He helped me do this without drinking. You know, there's no place in the world that can love that like that. You know, my daughters 
had a little kitty cat, and I talk about this every once in a while, and I'm going to try to share it in the, in the right way. I don't want to gross anybody out. <laughs> but they had a little cat that got hit by a car. And when they brought it in, its little innards were hanging out of the back. And, I, of course, I called it that. And he said, you know, just love it. Feed it water, you know, do what the kids, you know, but it's not going to make it. And, you know, I sat in there, and this was before recovery. I sat in there and I watched my daughters take turns every 10 minutes feeding that little kitty cat some water. And we had it in a beer flat. (laughs) And when it would try to come out to poop, they would lovingly pick it out and put it where it needed to, and then they'd lovingly put it out back in. Do you know that cat survived? And when I called the vet the next the next night, he said, "Only love will do that." And when I was doing an inventory one time, because my 12 and 12 says, you know, it's pretty nice to do a semi-annual or annual house cleaning whether you think you need to or not. Right, Nora? <laughs> Had to do that. That came up in my memory, and, and I could transpose that into Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what they did when I walked through that cancer. That's what they did when I lost the John L. that had saved my life, you know, or, or helped save my life. The Jim M. that no longer comes around the tables. These people held me up and hold me up. You know, there's some things going on in my life right now that, that they're helping me walk through. But it, because it's Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, how do I say this? What are what is the steps done for me? Because I tried to do what is suggested, and I guess maybe I need to talk a little bit about how I sponsor. You know, my sponsors always, always, I have a wonderful sponsor today. I don't have the same one that I did, but I have a wonderful sponsor. She's here tonight. (laughs) She's only been my sponsor for three years, and it took me a long time to find her because the sponsor that I had, it was time to move on, but I couldn't find the kind of sponsorship that I was looking for. And the kind of sponsorship that I look for is someone who will respect me, who will love me, but they will love me enough not to be worried about hurting my feelings. That if I'm off track, they're going to love me enough to say, hey, Pat, you need to look at this. You know, you need to check out what's going on, what you're doing, or what you're not doing. You know, that's the kind of sponsorship I have in my life. That's what my sponsor does for me. We're going through the steps. She can vouch that sometimes I don't want to look these steps either. I balk all the way. You know, I don't know why I have to still do this. I don't know why God's making me do this. Well, I've been around long enough. I know that when I look at myself and I find these things in myself, it's going to be better on the other side. And when I sponsor the girls, before we ever come into the relationship, I pretty well sit down and say to them, you know, this is what, how I sponsor. This is how it is. I can't sponsor this way and I can't sponsor that way. I have to sponsor out of this book and I have to sponsor in this manner. Because if I try to sponsor somebody 
any other way than what I've walked, and I tell them I'm gonna, they're going to be okay, then I'm lying to them. And I refuse to sponsor someone in a different way than what I had been sponsored and what I walked through because I can't competently say to them, oh, you'll be okay if you do it that way. So that's, that's real important. That's the kind of sponsorship. That's why, you know, I tell people, I'll not ask you to do anything I haven't done myself. I haven't had a sponsor that's ever asked me to do anything that they haven't done themselves. You know, it's just kind of the way it is. This fellowship and this program, and, and for the new people, you know, it really sounds like I'm a willing little candidate up here. Well, I want to tell you something. Most of the time, I'm willing, but I don't want to. And for the new person, if you're trying to get to the want to before the willing, you probably won't make it. Because nobody in this room wants to have to do what they have to do. You know, they may be willing to and they may be grateful that they've got a way to do it because that's the way I am. But I don't want to have to do what I do today to stay sober. You know, but I'm willing. And, and the thing that I might have today that you don't have is that I know on the other side it's going to be so much better. For so many years, I didn't know what was going to be on the other side. And, you know, going back to that cancer history, I celebrated my one year. You know, I celebrated my two. This January, I celebrated the 17th. You know, and my doctors were amazed before we were halfway through. There's another time that in my life that I was bed fast for two years. I was in bed 24-7. And people died from what I had. It was a reoccurrence of all kinds of stuff that came up. People died from that. But the people in Alcoholics Anonymous came to my house and literally picked me up and took me to a meeting that I could sit in for five minutes because I was hurting so bad they'd have to bring me home. And I'm alive today, and my doctors believe it's because of what Alcoholics Anonymous has done. And it all comes from that loving God that, that Bob talked about a minute ago. You know, that loving God, that, that one that I wouldn't believe in. Uh, today, I have a relationship with my daughters that, that I would have never thought could happen. One of the early parts of my recovery, <clears throat> before I even had the cancer, our youngest daughter was the, the daughter that wouldn't do anything. She wouldn't try out. She was kind of like, if you want treatment stuff, that lost child sitting in the corner. And it was just a few months into sobriety, she decided to stand for Heritage Day Queen, which is kind of like a beauty contest. She didn't know that I was going to see the application, and they wrote on there, who's the person that you most admire? And she didn't know her mom was going to get this. And she wrote, my mom, because she showed me what true determination is. People, there were times that I wanted to drink after that, a few times. And I thought, ain't no way. <laughs> there's no way I could take that away from my children today. You know, there's all kinds of forms of insanity and the farms of insanity is when you've got a pop-up camper with no air conditioning, no electric, and you go 24-7 with two 4-year-olds and two 12-year-olds. 
And, and you know, you have a ball, and that's what my children allow me to do with their children today. I get to take my grandbabies, you know. They want me to take my grandbabies. They trust me to take them five states away. Mississippi's got a wonderful state park down there in Mississippi's here. You know, they want me to do those things. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous gave me. You know, I've got a relationship with with my community. Uh, wasn't quite sure if I was going to share this or not, but the same community that I walked down the blade glass windows elected me to the city council. Now, I'm not quite sure if that speaks for recovery or the community. <laughs> and no one could understand, me included, why that was going so smooth that I could do that and be okay. Well, I'd already been a DCM in service, so city council's easy. If you've ever been a DCM, you know. But also, six months into my term, I realized that was my God's way of allowing me to make that direct amends to my community. Because I sure took from them a long time. You know, I've been able to be a better student. I went back to college. I have a CS and a CMS. No, uh, sorry about how old read SC and SMC. I hate all those letters, don't you? That's some college and some more college. <laughs> and you know something? I didn't have to finish anything because I knew I was good at what I was doing there. And, and what I thought I was supposed to be doing, I didn't need to do. You know, that's what it is right there. You know, I'm a better wife. I'm a better mom. I'm not the wife I want to be. I'm not the mom I want to be. I'm not ever going to be as good as I think I should be. You know, that's why I still need to come around Alcoholics Anonymous. But I'm better because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know, that blind date husband, he and I just celebrated 37 years of marriage. He loves Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I can remember when I first came in and I, I was going through all, going to all these meetings, especially when I had to travel to St. Louis, and, and I think, I wonder what he's thinking, you know, because I used to leave the house and I'd come home and this and that, and you know, I'd be drunk and, and all this, and I wonder what he's thinking. And finally, one day, I got enough courage to ask him. He said, honey, he said, you're so better while you're here. I don't mind you going away for a while. <laughs> You know, and he loves the fellowship. He, he he does the district meetings. You know, he's not a talker, which is good for me. You know, and we do things together. Today, this morning, though, he had some, some tests that he had to go through, so he was kind of vacillating whether he was going to come down tonight or not, but he made a decision not to come down tonight. You know, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous has given this alcoholic. They say, when you're done, you're done. You know, I hope I don't ever want to be done with Alcoholics Anonymous. I know I don't ever want to pick up another drink. And I know, and this is for the new people, I'm telling you, 
life is going to be life. You're going to have some stuff that happens. It's going to be out of your control, out of other people's control. You just don't ever have to pick up another drink. Don't mean you won't want to. Or it won't mean that you don't uh, need to, but you don't have to. Now, that's one thing in Alcoholics Anonymous that I learned daily, over and over and over again. I don't ever have to go back to that. So, before I go too long or too lengthy, I want to want... Oh, I do have to say one thing, though. Leon didn't share, because he's just chairman. He's not allowed to talk. <laughs> you know, I met Leon in 1991, right before I got really ill. And he had come up to share his story with us at the area assembly. And him and I got on the road one night looking for the speaker place, and he was a half hour late, and people knew who he was with. Because <laughs> neither one of us were where he needed to be, and, and he's been a big, active part of my recovery in my life for a long time, even though we don't talk that much. You know, Laura was talking about an example. I have other women, I have men as examples in how they walk Alcoholics Anonymous and how they live and I don't have that any other place you know I just don't have that any other place there's no place I can go in the whole world in any other organization and pick up the phone and say hey I'm in town where is such and such they're, they're real scared if you're not calling AA so I want to thank everybody. I want to thank Five Corners. I want to thank the original founders of Five Corners. Yeah, the originals. That, yes, please. We're not rich lady. Okay, we're not a rich lady and we're not a rich hubby and everything else here. So I've always been able to afford to pay for a conference if I need to go. But I'll lay you money. There's a lot in this room right now tonight that wouldn't be here if they had to. You know, and that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about, to make it inclusive. Everybody to be allowed to be a part of what we've got to offer. You know, so thank you for everybody showing up. Please have a good time because, like Smitty said, it's all about fun. It's a one more story I'm going to end with, and then I promise I promise I will end. When I was four years sober, I was in my sober and serious mode, and I called my sponsor, and I was into whatever. And she said, "You know, Pat," she said, "One thing I've always loved about you, no matter what's going on in your life, you've always had the ability to have fun. Now you need to do something. Go have fun." Well, this is Sunday, Easter Sunday, and I'm at work. And I'm thinking, what can I do? And then I remembered Hardee's had an Easter bunny. So I called the manager at Hardee's. This is what's good about small town. And I said, you won't know my name, but you'll know my face. Can I borrow your outfit? And you know something? They said yes. I called my husband, told him to meet me at Hardee's. Had the great big ears, the great big feet, so big that I had to call somebody from the fellowship because I couldn't drive. And we went and got Easter eggs and we filled them with candy and I went to the Mattis Road meeting in, in uh, South County on Sunday night and you know what they made me? 
They made me thumper the big book. <laughs> and you know, those are the experiences in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, the experiences of two men taking you out for your six-year birthday, spending over a hundred bucks on you, buying you roses, just because they want to, not expecting anything. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, those men that let me come into these tables, behind the scenes told these other men, you will treat her like a lady until she becomes one. And that's how they allowed me to stay in Alcoholics Anonymous. So with that, I'm going to close and thank you. And, and, and if nobody's told you they love you today, Pat B does. <laughs>